Well, good morning. Let me invite you to remain standing as we prepare to hear the Word of God. Uh, today, we are continuing our series in Exodus from darkness to light. And so we're making our way to what's called Moses's call narrative. We'll see about half of that today. And it's a long narrative. And one of the things that I would love for us to think about as I read it is, what God are you calling me to? What are you calling me to? Uh, so let's jump right in. This is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, 14. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, "'Why do you strike your companion?' He answered, "'Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian?' Then Moses was afraid and thought, "'Surely this thing is known.' When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well." Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, "'How is it that you have come home so soon today?' They said, "'An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock.' He said to his daughters, "'Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread.' Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do pray you are the great I am. And you have sent us into this world. You have sent your Son first, Jesus, to redeem us. You have sent your Spirit to be with us and to guide us and direct us and seal to us the hope of the gospel. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you come now and give us ears to hear and help us to respond to this call narrative of Moses Moses, to see us here in this passage, even as we behold the holiness and the goodness and the glory of your presence. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a number of years ago, I read a very charming article with a title that kind of says it all. The title is, Missing Woman Unknowingly Joins Search for Herself. Apparently, a tourist who was traveling in Iceland was alone on this journey. She was on a tour bus. They made a stop at a restroom, and I guess it was getting cold, so she went into the restroom off the tour bus. She changed clothes, and she came back to the bus. And not knowing anyone else on the tour, everyone kind of looked around and said, "Uh uh-oh, we're missing someone. And then they reported her as missing. She was by a volcano, and there was cliffs there, and so everyone was worried that the worst had happened, and so they brought a bunch of people together to start looking for this quote-unquote missing woman. The article continues, when the description of the missing woman was circulated, apparently the lady who changed her outfit didn't recognize the description of herself. So she joined the search party. About 50 people searched the area in vehicles and on foot, and a helicopter was ready to assist. Eventually, it occurred to the missing woman that she could very well be the person everyone was looking for. (laughs) Sorry. And she promptly reported herself as safe and sound to the police. The search was then called off. It's a great story, isn't it? (laughs) That came out about 10 years ago, 12 years ago now, and I still remember it. I love the story because it reminds me about our spiritual age. Obviously, we're not physically lost. Maybe some of you actually are physically lost. Please call off the search if you found yourself. But there is a growing meaningless spiritually that's creeping into our world. We want, uh, we more and more forget or don't even think of the big external poles of meaning in our world that give us a purpose and a calling. So generally, our society rejects big picture things to give us meaning like the call of our country or the call of family or a bigger creed to live for. And so what that means is more and more we're trying to figure out how to live for ourselves. We have to become our own meaning makers. So we generally, left with nothing else, answer the question, what's my meaning and purpose in life? With this answer, I guess my meaning and purpose in this life is to be happy. I guess it's to be happy. I'll just try to be as happy as I possibly can. We're taking our daughter to see Wicked for the very first time as it comes this holiday season. We're really excited about that. And this quest for happiness reminds me of one of the main characters, Galinda, the, the good witch of the North, who thinks all of her dreams have come true when she finds 
happiness in what she thinks is going to bring her fulfillment. And here's what she sings whenever she gets what she thinks she wants. And just listen to the sadness as she sings it. Because getting your dreams is strange, but it seems a little well complicated. There's a kind of a sort of cost. A couple of things get lost. There are bridges you cross you didn't know you cross until you crossed. And if that joy, that thrill, doesn't thrill like you think it will, Still, with this perfect finale, the cheers and the ballyhoo, who wouldn't be happier? You can hear that she thinks she's supposed to be happy, but she's not. She's not. Why? Our psyche was not created to bear the weight of creating our own meaning and purpose and happiness. That's not how God created us. And even more, if we try we will be lost to ourselves. Let me especially appeal to you younger generations. You've probably heard a preacher say this to to you before. Don't just seek happiness. Life and meaning and purpose is not just found in pursuing your dreams. But to the older generation, let me also say this. We wonder why our kids are only about their happiness. I wonder if they learned it from us. As if, as if the real meaning of life is making some money so that we can have a good retirement and getting our kids into a decent school. That won't sustain us. It just won't. It just won't. We must model a life lived for the purpose of God. A UPenn psychologist gave a parable and kind of illustrates this in a way. Talking to three bricklayers, you can ask the first, what are you doing? I'm laying bricks. Well, he has a job. The second, what are you doing? I'm building a church. Oh, well, he has a career. The third, what are you doing? I'm building a house for God. He has a calling. Every single one of us need to find out what our God-given calling is. We need to know, what is, God, what do you put me here for? What's my purpose? What's the meaning? And I know it's not just about being happy or being fulfilled as I narrowly circumscribe it. No, what, God, is my calling? But we won't know that calling until we come face to face with the God who calls. We won't know that calling until we look to the God who calls us. So that's what we're going to interrogate today as we think through this passage, and we're just going to go chronologically through it. We're going to first look at Moses, the failed liberator, and then we're going to see how God was at work because He is the redeeming God. And finally, we'll wrap up with some Advent reflections about our calling. So first, our story opens in 2.11 with Moses, the failed liberator. The beautiful baby boy Moses is now all grown up. And it seems like wonderful and good things should be in store for him. First, we learn that he's bicultural. It's a beautiful and wonderful gift to be bicultural. Some of you are bicultural here. He is both a Hebrew. He looks at the pain of his Hebrew brothers, and he says, those are my people who are in pain. But he's also an Egyptian, not just any Egyptian, an Egyptian prince. If we go down to verse 19, the Midianite daughters recognize that he is an Egyptian. He has the gate and demeanor of one of the Egyptian nobility. And that makes sense. He would have been trained at the most prestigious place you could have been trained, called a palace 
nursery. Now, when we hear the word nursery, don't think about that crying baby place out there. An Egyptian palace nursery would have been like the best education in the world at that time. He would have known how to carve the hieroglyphs on the temple walls, as well as read and write in the simplified papyri script. He would have learned Akkadian, which was the lingua franca of the time used for all diplomatic uh, correspondences. He would have known how to write those cuneiform letter things on those clay tablets. He would have known the code of Hammurabi, the most advanced legal code of the time. He would have known how to organize a society and a rule of law. This guy knew everything. And not only that, not only that, he would have been trained deeply in the arts of war. We should imagine an Alexander the Great type figure with a personal tutor of Aristotle. Moses had the equivalent of an MBA from Harvard, a JD from Stanford, and a degree in military science from Texas at West Point. <laughs> Sorry. But he wasn't just bicultural and gifted. There was also praiseworthy empathy in Moses. He cared about his people. The Holy Spirit tells us in Acts chapter 7 that it was in his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. He longed to bring them salvation. He longed to set them free from their oppressors. We can trace that empathy through two places, both his mother who took pity on him, who raised him up and nursed him, and also his adopted mother who heard the baby's cries. And that daughter of Pharaoh then lifted him up, drew him up out of the water, and set him free from his oppression. Moses, tender-hearted, resourceful, courageous, determined, gifted, surely this man would liberate the Hebrews. Well, not yet. Not yet. The story continues in verse 12. He strikes down an Egyptian for beating a Hebrew. Now, no matter which way you cut it, Moses is in the wrong here. Commentators throughout the ages have tried to make Moses less culpable, less guilty here. It's the same word, striking and striking down. So maybe the Egyptian was beating the Hebrew slave to death, and so Moses was just giving retribution in an appropriate manner. Maybe, maybe. But you can see some premeditation in Moses' part. What does it say in verse 12? He looks this way and that. He's looking around to see if he can get away with it. After he kills the Egyptian, he doesn't run away. He stops and he buries him in the sand. This is murder. This is wrong. Moses takes matters into his own hands. And he thinks maybe this is the spark that's going to start the liberation movement. He goes back to his Hebrew brothers the next day, and he tries to be an arbiter between two brothers who are fighting. And they say, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? We saw what you did to the Egyptian. Now Moses is fleeing for his life. He kind of left his calling as a prince of Egypt the second he advocated for the Hebrews, but he was not received by the Hebrews at all, and he's fleeing. Let's take a breath here and make a couple of comments. First, whatever God is calling you to, we can't force it through. We can't force it through. 
Moses here tries to force it through a couple of times. We don't get the sense that he has really talked to anybody in his family or people around him about this calling. He's just decided to go for it by himself. The other way he forces it through is by doing evil. The ends don't justify the means in our calling. Obviously, we are not called by God to do something if murder and deception are at the heart of it. But how much more of us hubris or self-justified sin on that pathway to what we think is what God is calling us to do. The second thing that we should notice from these verses is that our calling from God won't follow the script of the culture. It won't follow the script of the culture. Now, in this sense, Moses has the right idea. Right? To be a prince of Egypt, the easiest and most natural thing for him to do would have just consolidated his power, sit back on his throne, and enjoy the spoils of slavery. That would have been the easy thing to do. What's the cultural script for our families? I kind of alluded to it a moment ago at the beginning, didn't I? Make some money, get our kids into good schools, have a decent retirement. But God does not want us to settle for the cultural script. That's not a calling. That's not a calling, is it? When I do premarital counseling with a new family, you know, this new family being formed, oftentimes I'll say, okay, you're, this is something new. You're, make, you're something new. God is really putting two people together with different stories and backgrounds. What will the calling of your family be? What will the calling of your family be? It's a great question that we all have to ask ourselves. Third, these years of failure in Moses' life are not evidence of ultimate failure. They're not evidence of ultimate failure. I think that's how we often experience our setbacks, as if we've hit a dead end, right? But this isn't the case for a child of God. What's really beautiful here is in the next vignette of this story, Moses' desire to love the oppressed and to free the oppressor actually uh, from, uh, free the oppressed from the oppressor actually comes to the forefront. Again, God is still at work. Even in our dead ends, God is blowing the embers of our calling, so to speak, and setting them back to light. Look with me in verse 15. Fearing for his life, Moses flees to Midian. It's possible that he just randomly flees there, but it's more probable that he goes there on purpose because Midian was a descendant of Abraham just like he was. Then, sitting by a well, Moses sees some newly oppressed people, seven daughters of the Midianite Jethro. They're sitting by a well, and the shepherds come, and they won't let them water the well. They even try to drive them away, and Moses probably still in his Egyptian guard, garb, probably with a sword in hand, is able to stand up and defeat or drive away the shepherds. It's really beautiful. Two times in this passage, the verb for to draw out is repeated again. And it's almost like God is reminding us, the readers, hey, remember his name, Moses, the one who's drawn out of the water? There's still a calling for him to draw out the people of Israel unto God. It's really neat. Moses becomes that rescuer of the oppressed, and he goes, and this time it works. He finds a home with the Midianites. He finds a home. He marries a woman, Zipporah, and he scratches out for himself not the life of a prince of Egypt or a great liberator, but at least a good 
and decent life. At this point, you kind of get the sense, if you were reading this for the first time, that Moses is like an almost. He's like an almost, you know? He's almost the man to lead the people of Israel to freedom. Do you ever feel like an almost? I'm almost a good father. I'm almost a good friend. I am almost the child that my parents wanted. The scene ends as Moses realizes he isn't the strong liberator he thought he was. His son, the name of his son, bears this out, Gershom, which means sojourner or exile. Moses is an exile, far away from his home, seemingly far away from what he thought his calling was going to be. But the whole time, this is good news for us, God has been at work. This isn't a story about a failed liberator. This is the story about a redeeming God. Look with me at verse 23. The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the perfect bridge to this story. Up to this point, God has been mostly peripheral. All of the verbs used, He has not been the subject or the actor, and now God shows up in the story, and He begins to work. You see, it's not just the humans in this story that take pity. It's not just Moses who has pity on his people. It's not just Pharaoh's daughter who takes pity on this child. It's God who hears the cries of his children and takes pity on them. So, chapter 3 opens. A generation later, the exalted prince of Egypt has become a lowly shepherd near Mount Horeb. The word Horeb means glowing or heat, most probably because of what's about to happen in this next vignette. Moses sees a sight, a bush burning but not consumed. So he goes over to it. Now, it's not completely rare that a bush in the hot desert would burst into flame. That has happened before, but this is something entirely different. This is no natural phenomenon. Something supernatural is happening here. Fire, flame, heat, and nothing of that bush is being consumed. Verse 5, we're given a particular quality of the presence of God. The very first time that God has been described like this We are standing on holy ground. Holy. God is other. God needs no wood for His fire. God is creator, not creature. God is the one who stands behind all the natural phenomena of this world. He is not like some pagan god, Ra, who takes the sun across in a chariot, there just to explain what's happening in the world. No, God stands behind it. He is the source, the first and the last. He is the unmoved mover, the creator. He gives purpose and meaning to the world He has made, and beautifully, He loves giving purpose and meaning to the people that He's created. So, He calls Moses by name. Moses, Moses. He commands, Moses obeys, take your sandals off your feet. When He identifies Himself, He identifies with us. I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of your father. 
And then God promises to act in a way that Moses never could, starting in verse 7. I have surely seen the affliction. You thought you know. You thought you knew the people. I know the people. I have heard their cry. You thought you were merciful. I'm merciful. I know their sufferings. You thought you were empathetic. I'm empathetic. I have come down. I'm involved to deliver the Savior out of the hands of the Egyptians to redeem them, to bring them up, the right leader, the true liberator, into a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. It's this beautiful contrast, isn't it? between Moses in chapter 2, who does want to do something good for the people, and God, who not only wants much more than Moses does, but can do it. Here's the crux of the story for all of us almost people. Coming face to face for the, with the glory of God, God invites us into His purposes. He invites us into His purposes. Verse 10, come, I'll send you. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. When almost men and women are brought into the presence of God, we begin to understand our calling and our purpose in life. So, let me just give us four applications and a little bit of Advent hope. First, every day, when I look out into the world, I am more and more convinced that the ills we see in it are just symptoms, symptoms of living in a world without transcendent meaning, without a recognition of and a worship of the holy other and transcendent God. I really believe that. What that means is, is that what we need more than anything is to worship. We need to worship and pray to this one who truly is above us and beyond us and yet comes in the presence of an angel in the burning bush and even more so in the presence of Jesus who is the Christ to his people. We could do a lot worse than Fraulein Maria, two musical references today, who states the purpose of her life to find out what is the will of God and to do it wholeheartedly. It's a good mission statement. Second, our purpose in life is not derailed by our sin or brokenness. It's not derailed by our sin and our brokenness. The dead ends that we face are not final dead ends. All right? What was Moses? He was a murderer. He was a murderer and an orphan. A murderer and an orphan. Beautifully, the more we bring our past sins and our failures to God for redemption, the more He actually turns them and uses them in a good way for His purposes, right? Like, orphans care about orphans. The brokenness that we've experienced in our life, God turns to use for the goodness of His kingdom. Yea, even the sins that we have had to walk through, in and through them, we can help bind up the broken. Right? Jesus' wounds are what redeem us. Our wounds are helpful and beautiful and useful in the kingdom of God and His call for you. Third, most of the time God doesn't just do things. He prepares us to do them with Him. Most of the time God doesn't just do things. He prepares us to do them with Him. It's beautiful. Look at Moses. All along he really has been 
preparing Moses to free his people. Like all that stuff that we thought was a dead end wasn't. It was good. It was helpful. It's nice that Moses learned the art of war. Sadly, he needed that for the battles that lay ahead. Ever catch yourself thinking, why doesn't God just? If only God would. One of the points of the passage is to get each one of us to say, Lord, why did you bring me here to this job, this family, this school, this community as this person's coach? Why am I here? Because guess what is probably going on? Your heart and your background and your past and your story and everything about you up to this moment is exactly what is needed in that place. Fourth, our calling is always difficult. I wish this wasn't in there. Our calling is always difficult, right? Back at Moses' life, right? He's caught between two worlds. He's not really a prince of Egypt. He's not really a Hebrew. He's just caught in the middle. He calls himself an exile, a sojourner, someone who is cast out and away from what he thinks his calling is, rejected by the Hebrews, exiled by the Egyptians. By the time God meets him in the burning bush, all Moses can say is, Who am I? Who am I that I could lead this people out? But Moses is a type of the one to come. You know the Advent story, the one who stepped down from heaven, far more exalted than a prince of Egypt, who came to his own and his own did not receive him, who went to the powers that be and they crucified him. This Jesus walked a hard road too. The author of Hebrews in 2.17 says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Jesus, just like Moses, was humbled, amazingly, never with sin, and still humbled so that he could be a merciful high priest to his people. But in this truth also comes our challenge. Ultimately, Why do we have trouble finding God's calling and purpose for our life? Because we know it's difficult. Because we know it'll probably follow the pattern of Moses and the pattern of Jesus. And that's not an easy road. I want to go and do a calling that I can do, right? Like, I want to do something that's easy. I want to do something that I know that I have the resources in order to get it done. I love what's printed at the front of your bulletin. When Moses was faced with his vocation to bring my people out of Egypt, his reaction was, I can't, therefore I won't. The Lord sought to bring him to the point where he would say instead, I can't, but he can, therefore I will. We don't like embracing anything that begins with I can't, right? But that's always how God's calling begins. I can't. But he is the great I am. But I will be with you, he says to Moses. He is the great I am who will be with us so that we can say, I can't, but he will. He can, so I will. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this calling upon us. We know that it is hard, that it is difficult excuse me, that is the road that Jesus walked and His humiliation. But Lord, we also know 
that you are preparing us for a purpose. Help us to run away from the cultural script that is written for us, and help us to enter into the script that you're writing for us. Help us to be a people who can't do it ourselves, but rely wholly on the strength of our God. Help us to find our calling and purpose in this world, we pray. Amen.